You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy the episode. everyone. Welcome to another edition of Campus Beat. I'm Dinah Jansen, and I'm in the virtual studio with Dr. Chris Simpson of the Department of Medicine here at Queen's University and also a cardiologist at the Kingston Health Sciences Center. Welcome, Dr. Simpson. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here or with you. Can I call you Chris? Please do. Awesome. So happy new year to do, to you. Uh, and I guess it's going to be a great new year for you. We recently learned from Queen's University that you've been appointed as Ontario Health's Executive Vice President Medical. That's huge. Congratulations. I appreciate that. It should be an interesting challenge. Indeed, indeed. So we, I understand you'll be beginning this new position as of February 1st, but You'll be winding down some positions that you're currently holding at Queen's University while still maintaining a faculty position. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you, you've you been doing in the Department of Medicine, the Faculty of Health Sciences, and even at your work as a cardiologist at Kingston Health Sciences Center? Sure. Well, my, my current role right now is um, actually split between the university and, and clinical work. So I'm, I'm the vice dean clinical in the Faculty of Health Sciences. Um, but I work as a clinical cardiologist, uh, predominantly in the area of heart rhythm disorders, and in particular, uh, inherited heart rhythm disorders that predispose people to sudden death. So a lot of uh, genetic cardiac stuff, which is uh, quite interesting. Amazing. So your work in cardiology, are you a practicing cardiologist? Do you have many patients as well that you see on a day-to-day basis? I sure do. I'm in uh, fortunate to be in a group practice of uh, seven other heart rhythm specialists and a a larger division of about 20 cardiologists. So um, I do things like implant pacemakers and defibrillators and do catheter ablation procedures for people with arrhythmias and uh, look after general cardiology patients too, who have, you know, heart attacks and angina and heart failure and that sort of thing. So uh, never a dull moment. Indeed. And now tell us a little bit more about the work you do as vice dean in, in the Faculty of Health Sciences. What does that entail? Well, it's been a really interesting role, and I've had the great privilege of working with our new dean, Dr. Jane Philpot, who, of course, was a former Minister of Health, and uh, I've known her for, for many years. Uh, she's a family doctor and an extraordinarily capable leader um, who's been doing a lot of really interesting work on uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, and she's really moving the bar very rapidly uh, to, our, to our great uh, credit uh, uh, and benefit here at Queen's. So it's, it's been a privilege uh, to, to work with her. But my day-to-day work there is uh, basically looking after the 350 clinical faculty we have, uh, most of whom also work clinically like I do, um, uh, overseeing our practice plan, uh, so making sure they all get paid, uh, making sure their academic advancement is looked after and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so you've recently been appointed as Ontario Health's Executive Vice President Medical. Again, congratulations to you. This is a brand new role. Can you tell us about what you'll be doing when you start in February? It should be really interesting. Um, Ontario Health, you may recall, is uh, 
the new so-called super agency that uh, was formed about a year ago. And it's bringing together a lot of crown agencies like Cancer Care Ontario and Health Force Ontario, uh, Health Quality Ontario, into one large agency, which is intended to oversee the running or the operations of, uh, of the healthcare system, predominantly the hospital-based uh, healthcare system. And so the role of Executive Vice President Medical is to... Uh, uh, oversee the medical leadership structure uh, in the whole organization. So I'll be ultimately responsible for delivering quality and timely care for cancer patients, cardiac patients, uh, renal patients, um, anybody who needs uh, hospital or facility-based care in Ontario. Wow. So I've got to ask, how do you balance the administrative work, your research interests, as well as your clinical practice? How do you do it? You have so much. Well, in this particular circumstance, I, I will have to step down as the vice dean um, in order to free up the time. But uh, Ontario Health was specifically looking for a practicing physician in this role rather than a full-time uh, administrator. And uh, that was something that really interested me because I uh, really feel uh, that when you're a peer uh, leading your peers, it's, it's very different than uh, somebody who doesn't really know what it's like to be in the trenches. Um, and that's not to disparage those who don't have a clinical profile because of course they have unique leadership characteristics as well. But in the clinical world, it's, um, it's very, very uh, essential, I think, for, um, for somebody who actually knows what it's like day to day uh, on the front lines to be in these sorts of positions. So I was very grateful to Ontario Health for seeing it that way. So was this a position that you applied for or were you headhunted? <laughs> it was a position that I applied for, although uh, during the pandemic, I've been doing a lot of work with Ontario Health already, uh, leading their COVID-19 uh, clinical science table, uh, developing guidance on personal protective equipment and how to manage ramping down and ramping up with different waves of COVID. So I was pretty familiar with all of the players already. Um, and so when I applied for the position, um, I think that uh, I had the advantage of, uh, of having worked with uh, a lot of the leadership already. Mm hmm. Now, I feel like as a cardiologist, you're uh, you're obviously an achiever already. What inspired you to uh, move further in your career from being a cardiologist, which is one of the top fields, I think, that anybody can you know do. And now you've taken this to a, a much higher level. You've moved from from being a vice dean, which is also pretty extraordinary now moving into uh, work for the province itself. What's motivating you to move beyond cardiology to education and to provincial work? Well, it, it's a good question. And, and I'm not sure I have a great answer for that other than to say that uh, I've always been interested in health policy. And I was heavily influenced by uh, Duncan Sinclair, who's a former uh, Dean of Medicine here at Queens and, and one of my mentors. And uh, Duncan um, is now up in his 80s and uh, still advises me on a regular basis. But he had a vision many years ago of uh, building a real health system uh, in Canada uh, and has done some very important work uh, on how we might do that. And I see Ontario Health as a way to amalgamate a lot of kind of standalone siloed structures um, into one real system that can deliver better, more efficient care and better quality care for patients. We have all of these silos in healthcare and within the silos, there is excellence and, and patients will tell you when they have a solitary healthcare experience that it's, it's generally very good. 
But when we hand off patients from the acute care experience back to primary care or into rehabilitation um, or to other parts of the healthcare system along a, lo uh, you know, a longitudinal care experience, it's at those handoffs where there are mistakes made and, uh, and uh, inefficiencies are generated. And so the chance to create a system inside a structure like Ontario Health was, was really appealing to me and I think may help me to play a small part in helping to fulfill Duncan's uh, vision for what healthcare should be like in Canada. Great. Thank you so much for sharing. Do you have, I wonder if you have any advice for uh, younger students, perhaps students in life sciences who are thinking about moving towards a career in medicine, what advice might you have for them? Well, I, I get asked that question a lot by, by my students. And um, the first observation I have is that uh, the, the crop of young uh, healthcare professionals and healthcare professionals to be are way better than we were in my generation. They, they tend to have um, a very noble view of what their role should be in the world. Um, it, I find it's not really about ambition for them. It's about how they're going to leave a, a mark on the world. And um, so they don't really need a whole lot of advice from me, but I think what I would say to them is that, um, you know, they, they should really keep doing what they're doing. Um, they, they see their jobs as having a key component of civic responsibility. And um, uh, I think if there's anything we can do for those of us in leadership positions who are kind of, um, you know, developing the structures and designing the healthcare system, we want to create lots of room for people who have that kind of view of the world, who want to contribute in a meaningful way. And so I have uh, every confidence that uh, the future of healthcare in Canada is in very, very good hands with our young people. I really like what you've been saying too about uh, goals and ambition and leadership, Chris. Clearly, uh, you're a great exemplar of all of these. I wonder, too, you've talked a little bit about the role that you'll be taking with Ontario Health as the Executive Vice President Medical. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the goals that you hope to achieve? What do you want to do this year? What do you want to do in the next five? Well, I think what we want to do this year is get to the other side of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, the, the next couple of months, uh, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, are going to be very, very challenging uh, in, I would say, an unprecedented way in the healthcare system. Uh, there's a very real chance that the healthcare system will be temporarily overwhelmed with uh, COVID patients. Um, and we're doing our best to mitigate that negative impact. Um, but as we get vaccinations rolled out um, and get into the summer and fall, I think uh, the light that's at the end of the tunnel will be um, uh, even brighter. And uh, we'll be able to actually capitalize on all of the disruption uh, to really accelerate the pace of healthcare transformation. And that means integration, it means more delivery of multidisciplinary care, it means um, more focus on generating outcomes rather than just outputs. Mm -hmm. um, it means uh, paying and incenting uh, healthcare providers in a way that delivers the outcomes that we want. And, you know, frankly, it means getting better value for money. Uh, we have a very expensive healthcare system with kind of mediocre results. Um, and I would like to see us uh, deliver uh, even better results for the uh, for the investment that the taxpayers are making in our system. Okay, and now tell us a little bit more about the team that you'll be working with. Well, there's a there's a fantastic um, senior leadership team already. Uh, the CEO uh, Matt Anderson is an extraordinary leader who's uh, a former hospital CEO. He's very well respected in the system. 
he is one of the most nimble thinkers I think I've, I've ever worked with and I think is uniquely positioned to uh, take over an organization that has tremendous uh, potential to affect uh, change. Mm -hmm. uh, the clinical team, I think, is one that will be assembled, uh, and that'll be part of the fun job that I have, is to uh, imagine what kind of uh, structures at the meso and micro levels we'll need uh, to, uh, to deliver the clinical leadership. And I believe very strongly in grassroots clinical leadership, as I said earlier, that people who are on the ground um, will be able to feed up uh, to the senior leadership what's happening out there and, and help us to develop uh, good, solid policies and, um, and meaningful leadership. All right. So do you have anything else to add about your new role and where you're going from here? No, other than to say I'm really looking forward to it, um, although I uh, uh, started in kind of a bittersweet mood because uh, leaving my uh, role on the decanal team at Queen's uh, after just four and a half years is a, a little earlier than, than I had planned. Um, but at the same time, I think uh, the, the chance to uh, be a part of uh, what I think will be accelerated change in healthcare is, uh, is very exciting and, and uh, also a responsibility I, I take very seriously. So I have no doubt, doubt that I'll make lots of mistakes along the way. Um, but I figure if you're not making mistakes, you're probably not doing it right. Um, as long as you learn from those mistakes, of course. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I think we, we, we can't be afraid to, to, you know, really take advantage of, of all of this disruption in the system now to, you know, make some meaningful changes in the inequities that are embedded, structural in inequities in healthcare, um, and uh, delivering better outcomes. And uh, I'm really, really focused on uh, doing that over the next few years. Well, congratulations once again, Chris, uh, on the new role with the province, and uh, you'll be missed, I'm sure, in the Faculty of Health Sciences. But fortunately, you're still staying on as a faculty member as well, I understand. Will you still be teaching actively on a, on a weekly basis? How's that going to look? Yeah, I'll still, still be teaching. Um, I have a lot of uh, residents and fellows, and uh, I do deliver some lectures at the medical school and at the School of Policy Studies from time to time. So uh, I'll still be around for sure. And you'll still be taking patients uh, uh, as a clinician too? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it'll be, uh, I'm reducing my clinical responsibilities a bit, but I'll, I'll still be seeing patients a couple of days a week. All right, so there you go, Kingston. <laughs> Your doctor is still around for you. All right, thank you very much, folks. We've been talking to Dr. Chris Simpson, who is taking on a brand new role uh, with, the, uh, with Ontario Health uh, from his position as a vice dean here at uh, the Faculty of Health Sciences at Queen's University. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Happy New Year and congratulations once again. Thanks so much. I really appreciate the time. Again, you're still listening to Campus Beat. I'm Dinah Jansen. Now top stories from around Queen's University. On December 23rd, 2020, Queen's University did issue a statement to students urging them to avoid returning to Kingston until January 23rd in an effort to support provincial directives advising all Ontarians to stay at home to the fullest extent possible, noting that travel outside one's region should be limited to essential purposes only. The university urged students, including those living on and off campus and international students who were scheduled to travel to Kingston for the start of the winter academic term, to avoid travel into Kingston until after January 23rd. 
This means that the start of in-person classes will be delayed, with the exception of a limited number of classes that require in-person teaching as permitted by the government, such as clinical training that supports health-related programs, including medicine, nursing, and rehabilitation sciences. Students in other programs who were expecting to begin on-campus activity in the winter term will receive further communications from their faculty or program office. Students who are scheduled to return or move into a residence building are strongly encouraged to remain in their home communities unless absolutely necessary. These students will receive additional information from Residence Life Services shortly. International students traveling to Kingston for the start of the winter term are strongly encouraged to delay their arrival unless absolutely necessary. These students will receive additional information from the Queen's University International Centre shortly. The university also states that researchers conducting already approved on-site research activity, that researchers should work remotely from home if they can, only coming on campus as necessary. New requests for on-site activity are currently suspended. Important information on research continuity planning, including on-site access, human participant research, and field research is available on the Vice Principal Research website. All athletic and recreation facilities remain closed at Queen's University for in-person access. On-campus access for employees will be limited. Only essential Queen's University staff and faculty or those who must be on campus to do their work should be on campus. All other faculty, staff, senior administration, and student leadership will work remotely, except for required ad hoc access, for example, to record a lecture, printing documents, or retrieving files, or those individuals with accommodation requirements. All university-sponsored travel outside of Canada remains suspended indefinitely. This affects students, staff, faculty, and includes all future exchange, study abroad, letters of permission, faculty-led programs, internships, research placements, and community-engaged learning practicums and conferences. More information on the impact of the provincial-wide shutdown and its impact on Queen's University will be available as soon as possible from Queen's University. Units, departments, and faculties across the university will be providing updates on their services on their own websites and through other communication channels. In other university news, in mid-December, Queen's University announced five academics have been named Canada Research Chairs, a prestigious honour created to promote leading research and to attract and retain the world's best researchers. From Queen's, Stephanie von Latke, Grace Adenyi Ogunienken, Laura Thompson, Susan Bartels, and Jacqueline Moynihan have been named Tier 2 Canada Research Chairs. Tier 2 Chairs are five-year positions that are granted to exceptional emerging researchers acknowledged by their peers as having the potential to lead in their field. Kimberly Woodhouse, the Vice Principal Research at Queen's University, noted that she is delighted that these five exceptional women leaders have been appointed Canada Research Chairs at Queen's and that these researchers will continue to contribute to new discoveries across multiple disciplines, enhancing the university's research excellence. In other news, the Society of Graduate and Professional Students Executive Team will be holding a town hall-style meeting on Saturday, January 9th at 2.30 p.m. EST. Graduate and professional students at Queen's will be sent the meeting password to their Queen's email. SGPS offices remain closed in the JDUC, but staff and services are still operational virtually. Visit sgps.ca slash contact to get contact information for the executive, each commission, and for services like the SGPS Health and Dental Plan, Bursary Program, Graduate Peer Support Centre, and more.
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. 